When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with... Scott Tobias. Rachel Handler. And... Keith Phipps. Plus producer Genevieve Kosky waxing the boards behind the scenes. This week we're talking about Robert Eggers' new suspense movie, The Witch, and Robin Hardy's 1973 movie, The Wicker Man. Two films about superstition, dread, child sacrifice, spring hairs turning up where hairs shouldn't be, and people singing creepy songs. The films have a lot of small things in common, including a stiff-necked, proud Christian character who brings on his own fate but doesn't necessarily deserve it, and a conflict between a Christian element associated with civilization in the future and a pagan element associated with nature in the wilds. They're also both fundamentally conspiracy films, where a dark element stalks its oblivious victims, and viewers spend most of the film knowing something horrible is coming without necessarily knowing what that is. So in this half of the podcast, we're going to dig into those connections, consider whether scary and horrifying are related at all, and look at what these two movies have to say, both about the eras in which they were made and about the eras they're meant to be portraying. Black Philip Sif, you are wicked. Does he really speak to thee? This wilderness will not consume us. You've cursed this family. This is witchcraft. She placed a curse on me. Why have you turned against me? I saw it. Your reign of evil. It's not safe. Not with them. Think all my sins. Okay, so as far as I know, we all liked The Witch, but what did you think of looping back and watching it with The Wicker Man? How do those two films work together for you? I didn't honestly know very much about The Wicker Man. I'd heard of it. I hadn't seen it before. So I think when we were all talking about pairing these two films, I just trusted you guys when you said, let's pair these two films. But they ended up being incredibly complimentary. I really liked watching them next to each other because I felt like they informed me about each other a little bit. They both dealt with feminism in this really interesting way. They both dealt with religion. They both dealt with the way that humans treat one another, sort of the darkest impulses of the human animal. And I, I don't know, I think they watching them in a row really made them both better in my regard. It's also just a lot of rabbit imagery. So much rabbits. <laughs> Technically hairs, but if I say yeah. there's so much hair imagery, everybody's just going to think of Brett Eklund dancing around with her long blonde hair. So you, you have to spell out the homonym, but still lots of hairs in mm-hmm. both movies. It's just a really common thing. But I, I think you said the parallels really nicely there, Tasha. But but I mean the approaches could could not be more different. I mean the the tones, the, the look and feel of these films are, are both striking in their own way, but have very little to do with each other, which I think makes them make you know a good companion pieces in that way. Once you get past the surface, they're very similar films in in many ways for all the reasons you point out. But just looking at them on the surface, you you know they're, they're quite different. Uh, let me say one 
important thing they, they have in common. The amount of research and detail that goes into both of them is so critical to both of them working. They're both immersive experiences. They both take you to this world that you're not familiar with at all. The world of the Wicker Man is a contemporary place away from Christian society. And then, you know, the witch brings us all the way back to 1630. You know, I think there's there are ways of approaching both. And I think you see it in the remake of the Wicker Man, where you could nominally have it set, you know, at a certain time and place. But the details that you bring into it just make the movie in both cases. The thing I really love about the witch is that I think you could just not have anything at all supernatural in it and it would give you a, a, you know almost like i mean ingmar bergman is an example like carl dreyer would be another one of just how hard it was for these puritans to try to make their way you know in the new world uh, that was not you know quite literally not fertile for the, for them and you know and not the place that they thought that they this refuge i guess they thought they could have to practice life the way they sought to practice it and it's really just all in the research and in the details in, in bringing you into this to this world i think once you accomplish that plotting elements of it the, the intensity the horror i think that's almost a secondary i found also thinking of the dan simmons novel the terror which i know is a book that you and i both like scott where oh, yeah. it's about a snow beast that terrorizes yeah. a expedition looking for the northwest passage in the mid-19th century but you don't need this monster or the snow beast for, for it to still be like a really harrowing read. The life is so hard. And I would, wow, would I not want to live in the world of the witch? <laughs> <laughs> witch or no witch, that's a, that's a rough life. I mean, it kind of contrasts with the life on Summer Isle, where theoretically the whole reason paganism was brought in was because they were living these incredibly hard, harsh, austere lives, trying to make something out of nothing, trying to grow crops where crops wouldn't grow. And the whole introduction of paganism was to kind of bring some joy back into their lives. And I think there's, with the witch, you almost get that original moment with Thomason where it's like, hmm, maybe I don't have to live this way. <laughs> Maybe there's something a little bit else. I mean, the, the word sin is in her name. I mean, there's kind of like, she has a curiosity to her that I guess is associated with sin. And I, I think you can see that original moment might have happened generations ago in The Wicker Man, but it happened, you know, when it was when it was decided we're not going to, we're going to break from the way we lived before and do something different. I hadn't really thought about sin being in her name. And as I was drawing all of these comparisons between these films, all of these small things, it didn't even occur to me that the witch is just so strongly about the coming of age of this young girl who's accused of being something that she's not. And The Wicker Man is so much about the coming of age of this young girl who is participating in every way in part of her society mm -hmm. and about her kind of her symbolic death and rebirth throughout the entirety of the film. I Wow. I, one of the things I love about putting these two films together, The Wicker Man is one of my all-time favorite films. I have seen it so many times. The Witch just struck me so hard as this incredibly indelible, specific vision, this like really idiosyncratic movie from somebody who really knew what they were doing. And every time I sit and think about the two of them, I find another line of parallel that I hadn't noticed. Just to speak briefly to your point, though, Scott, about all the, uh, the detail and the specificity that went into both of them, I found it really interesting that Eggers' film is the one that took five years of research, and he supposedly took most of the dialogue from actual written sources of the time. But Wicker Man actually starts with a like a title card thanking the people of Summer Isle for their participation in the film and for like bringing all of the details of their worship uh, like and uh, like all of that it like almost pretends that the movie is a documentary which it adamantly isn't like Summer Isle is a fictitious place all of this detail came from elsewhere but it it's almost like they were positioning it as the first found footage horror movie as though like a documentary crew was tracking all of this stuff and it's just sort of yeah we want to thank you for uh for letting us <laughs> observe your your heinous rights <laughs> Speaking of heinous rights, <laughs> Scott. Oh, that's a, that's solid. That is, a, that's a, that is Scott. A, I believe you have a topic for us. Yeah, I do. Uh, my topic is: Is it scary? And, you know, much like the Coen's Hail Caesar, the Witch opened to excellent reviews from critics and a C minus cinema score, which, as we said. Uh, on the previous podcast before is a very difficult grade uh, to get from people who are paying <laughs> deliberately to see a movie. We are now the C minus Cinema Score podcast. We are, <laughs> we are. You know, and no doubt the witch was estranging for a host of reasons, from its language uh, to its obsession with recreating Puritan life. But there may be another reason too. Uh, audiences did not find it scary, and I think it's intuitive to hold horror movies to that standard. Was it scary? If the answer is no, then it's not an effective horror movie. But I think that's 
a flawed metric when it comes to evaluating the work of a horror movie. I can think of many examples of shoddy films that scared me and and brilliant horror films that that didn't. The the Wicker Man is not remotely scary, uh, and The Witch I'd describe as more creepy than frightening, uh, but both succeed where it counts. Uh, They immerse you in a strange, specific place and allow the atmosphere to do most of the work. I don't think either of these films would be improved by hitting familiar horror beats. I am absolutely with you on the not hitting familiar horror beats, but I'm going to push back against you a little there. Because as we walked out of the theater, I said, that wasn't scary. And having been sold on it's the scariest film on a mm-hmm. Sundance, it's the scariest thing you're ever going to see. I am a horror movie weenie. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't stop me from going to see films. I love, like, The Orphanage is one of my favorite films. It's also one of the scariest films I've ever seen. It's the kind of movie that I, I end up just, like, balled up into a tight little knot with. Mm-hmm. This movie, I spent most of The Witch just sort of thinking, oh, that's that's dreadful. What is going to happen <laughs> next? And I, like, you know, calm sort of way. If I'd been sitting next to somebody holding his hand, he would not have fingernail marks in that hand. But when I pointed this out to you, you said, what are you talking about? That movie was terrifying. No, I, I did find it. I, that's true. I, I did find it scary, but not in the, not in, I guess maybe not in the unexpected way. Uh, it just doesn't operate like a horror film, like, like a traditional horror film. It is a, like I said, kind of a, you know, kind of a Bergman film or a dryer film with, supernatural elements um which which makes it frightening and it makes it harrowing but it doesn't scare you in a, in a way that it doesn't have like too many sequences i guess or certainly not jump scares or maybe one or two of those but but the types of sequences that you associate with horror films that are supposed to be tense and kind of get you get you going i, I just don't necessarily think the witch operates under those with, with that with those rhythms am i wrong about that i, I... Well, I don't think you're wrong about that, but I okay. The Wicker Man is not scary. It is you know, yeah. at best chilling. Mm, um, at best, the, the end is chilling. The Witch is maybe not scary in the way you're talking about, but it is. I think dreadful is the right word. It, it is. It is a sense that things were going horribly wrong, and then they got worse and worse. And and but but I mean also we know spoilers, I guess, but we know fairly early on there is a supernatural presence here that is going to exert itself. In some horrible way, mm-hmm. and it does, uh, you know, throughout the film here and there, and then in the end, uh, very explicitly in a way that I I, I found very disturbing, and also that goat scary too. Black Philip, <laughs> <Yeah, come on. laughs> Black Philip is an unsettling presence. You know, the atmosphere and the music. I thought the music was used very effectively yeah. in this film. Uh, I don't know. I've, I I just feel like the metric. I was I, I was not not scared. Let's put pr- it that I guess way. my point is that the metric. Is it scary? I think is a poor metric. Yeah, for I agree. Oh, for sure. I, I think, agree, that, that's yeah. a, I think people were also saying, is. is it scary in a way that I've been scared before? I was disappointed early on when the witch was shown and that there was such an obvious reference to the witch over and over. For me, I think it almost would have been scarier. I'm not saying it would have necessarily been a better film, but if, it, if the horror was just inherent in this family sort of unfolding and making a, a monster out of their own daughter, the ambiguity of it would have been more frightening to me. But the fact that they showed this old hag cutting up a baby, I was like, oh, that that was just not that creative. You know, I was like, <laughs> oh, another one of those movies. Well, no, the but like, it just felt like, OK, that's what that's what we expect, like a witch to look like, you know, long gray hair and kind of gross. And the genre parts, I think, were not as scary to me as the rest of it, which was much more unsettling and much more unexpected. I mean, I loved the movie. I really loved the movie. Don't get me wrong. But when it, when I left the theater, I was thinking to myself, I think I almost, I, I know we don't like to talk about if the movie had been different, but I, I like to talk wished, about that. That's just Scott. Yeah. I don't know where Keith stands on it. I almost wish that like it had just been ambiguous the whole time because I think that would have been more powerful. And it also felt like it was kind of, he was trying to have it both ways a little bit. Like, is there a witch? You know, is his family crazy? Are they crazy Puritans for believing in witches? No, they're right. There are witches. I mean, it it basically just makes it a very different movie. I Mm -hmm. think one of the most interesting things about The Wicker Man, besides the ending, is the mystery. Mm -hmm. Because there's so much ambiguity to what exactly happened. So many of the things he's told are revealed as lies so quickly that you you never question that something hinky is going on. Yeah. You just don't know the nature of what that is. And I agree with you that like seeing the witch up front, for me, like it, it took a lot of the tension out of the movie yeah. because there was no mystery. Right. What I found interesting about that, though, was then it becomes a movie, instead of being a movie about is there a witch, isn't there a witch, it becomes a movie about injustice. It becomes a movie about how the family turns on Thomason and how you can see that there's absolutely no fairness to that whatsoever. It becomes more about how their religion 
only gives them a few sort of acceptable outlets for how to interpret things. And we know that those interpretations, that some of them are right and some of them are wrong, we know up front which ones are which. Mm-hmm. And it would have been a very different movie if that was left more ambiguous, but it would have been such a different – the emotions would have been in a different place. And I kind of feel like I know what that other movie would have looked like because I've seen that movie more often. Mm. I've seen the who's crazy story. (laughs) I do think that the ending is the most problematic part of the film, and Mm. I think it's because because of that that question of, all right, well – they sort of pushed her into it. Mm-hmm. It became a self-fulfilling prophecy. But then in the end, I'm not sure what that ending says about witches. Is it like or triumphant Thomason. or is it right? Like whose side is he on kind of thing? It's- yeah, that's I think the Wicker a- Man connection though, right? right? right. I mean, mm-hmm. For in sure. In terms of finding that middle ground where, you're, where, where I don't think you're necessarily, totally. uh, I guess, what spiritually speaking on either end of the equation. But I do, I kind of want to just a little bit push back on, on seeing the witch up front because I think... Seeing her and what happens to this child, uh, I think it it, it establishes very early on just how serious and grave a threat we're we're dealing with, and and it adds you know a level of intensity and fright and just pure evil. I mean, there's just nothing more evil than that that hovers over the movie. And I think you take that away, I think you lose a little bit of that um, from the film. This is kind of crazy, but I rewatched The Witch last night and. Until I read what happened to the baby and then rewatched the film with that in mind, I actually didn't get that part because Mm. it's so outside my frame of reference for what can happen in a movie. Like you see the baby and you see the knife, but the fact that the baby is naked and a boy and the way she sort of like reaches for its genitals, I basically thought that she had possibly castrated it, but more likely circumcised it and that like that was what she was making the skin lotion out of it it honestly didn't sink in for me i was expecting to see the baby again that is how badly i misread that film and it's because it, what actually happens was just inconceivable to yeah me. it's awful yeah and i do feel like one of the things that makes it interesting is that balance between like in the end nobody's blameless nobody's right. sinless which is kind of what the father is saying up front right. i mean he is kind of right about that they all are full of sin and having a hard time repressing their sinful nature and it's ironic that his actions push them in the direction of sin right but one of the darkest things about both of these movies really is that there's no evidence for god like existing or caring about anyone in either of these films and there is a pretty strong indication that at least in the witch that Satan is real and active in the world. You know, we talked about Bergman and Dreyer. There are two specific films by each of them that the film reminded me of, Ordet from Dreyer and Winterlight from from Bergman. And in both cases, they are about families that are could not be more pious and you know prayerful and uh, you know de- understanding really that they're dealing with a god of an Old Testament you know wrath you know filled nature. And it just doesn't yield anything. I mean, they're just confronted with the fact that all they get for their trouble is just more pain and, and misery. And I think in, in the case of The Witch, you know, you have a character in Thomason who's able to uh, question that just a little bit. And the movie kind of kind of you know unfold from there or unravel from there. We've been talking a lot about religion and God and Satan and their various worshipers. Uh, Keith, it seems to me that this transitions nicely into your topic. Yeah, I just want to talk about Christianity and, and just sort of in religion in general um, in these in these two films. And I think from a certain point of view, you could look at both of these as in some ways Christian films, uh, because it is the kind of going apart from the Christian community that that ultimately does the family and the witch in. And for however we feel about Howie's priggishness, we talked about this in the first half, but he is he does stay true to his beliefs and is an, you know, he is not a murderer. He is not someone who is going to, who would sacrifice somebody or burn anyone else in, in a fire and ultimately ends up sacrificing himself for what he believes is the, is the greater good. I think it takes a lot of bending to really see them as sending a Christian message, but there is perhaps that is the preferable point of view. If, if, if the alternatives here are becoming a Satan worshiping witch 
or burning people alive, perhaps the uh, perhaps Christianity it, it does end up coming out on top. That being said, I, I think there's a couple of a couple of things that that are worth exploring here. One is you mentioned uh, paganism as being seen as an element of of the past uh, and not the future, and Christianity as the future in both these films. I think you're correct up to a point, Tasha, but I think a little bit of cultural context is is good for the Wicker Man. It emerged in the early 70s and at a time when traditional religion was certainly not at its highest point in, in the culture, and a lot of alternative religions were popping up, whether it's sort of a return to paganism or cults and the sort of the idea that, you know, you abandon your beliefs and go somewhere and follow a charismatic leader and have sex a lot of the times and, and, and cut yourself off from outsiders. You know, it's sort of a fantastic situation here, but it's something that was being played out both both in England and in America and elsewhere uh, quite a bit in the early 70s. So I think there's a little bit of fear of the old old ways crumbling and these sort of these new whatever their pagan roots these sort of new beliefs uh, resurfacing and taking the place it's playing itself out in the wicker man as as well it's harder to find because it is so firmly set in the uh, 17th century it's it's hard to find as many contemporary resonances in the witch apart from its portrayal of women's roles, which I think we're going to get to next. But I guess, how did everyone else read read these movies' views on religion and Christianity? I mean, The Witch was endorsed by the Satanic Temple, (laughs) and it seems really obvious why. It seems to me that this film presents a clear contrast between Christianity as a hard road to hoe where you're continually striving and you're not going to get anything in return, where you're perpetually suffering on earth, or the option is worshiping Satan and having creature comforts, having what you whatever butter you want. Address. Yeah, the taste of butter. <laughs> what a strange thing to offer somebody. <laughs> presumably, I mean, there's there's no specific talk of of selling your soul, but presumably that's the deal right. for the taste of butter. Toast if you have a toast around. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, they do have bread. I mean, corn, like for home, man. They, yeah. If the corn comes through so one year, then then they'll actually have that. the taste of butter for it. Not mm-hmm. actual butter, mind you, but the taste of butter. <laughs> right. I mean, there is something to be said just for the the harshness and misery of a life where the idea of the taste of butter is a luxury. Yeah. But I mean, in the end, she appears to Thomason appears to be experiencing some sort of like transport of joy over what's happening to her. And it's like, pretty much the only pleasure we see in the film. Mm-hmm. It's like she's reached an apotheosis of of satisfaction and happiness and safety that was constantly denied to her throughout the film. I, I don't see that as being very positive towards Christianity. Mm-hmm. But at what cost? I mean, she's she's throwing herself in with the sort of the, the baby killing. Baby mashers. <laughs> right. Baby masher. Right. Uh, and, and abandoning. Obviously, there's not much of her family left at this point, but, but, but severing all final ties with her family family and the community and and everything she's believed up to that i mean i kind of don't get why the church of satan has endorsed this because there is you know it is portrayed as as, as a, a fairly awful thing that she's that she throws herself in with however much it is also kind of a liberating thing which i'm sure we'll get into in the next topic keith i think your uh your christian upbringing is showing <laughs> maybe so i mean i don't i don't mean that at all in a bad way i think the fact that like i think you're bringing a morality into this film that's like a good morality that's against baby mashing and burning people alive which <laughs> is a good you? thing but i'm not sure that the witch in particular I'm not sure that it shares those views. Mm-mm. I mean, I think they endorse it because it makes it seem like she, her life was horrific up until the end when it's still horrific. But then it's sort of like this empower, it presents it as this empowering moment where she's finally allowed to let her hair down, take off those constricting clothes, run into the wilderness and just like have a great time with some other ladies. Like, it, I mean, I, obviously she's going to do baby mashing later, <laughs> but like, they don't tell you what they, they, they don't seem very front. concerned about that. I, you're right. I don't think there is like, a, there is not really a moral. Well, sin is, is, you know, liberating, but it's still sin. I don't know. I don't feel like the film endorses it in so much as just depicts it, I guess. I love the way it plays the ambiguity. I, I, I yeah. love how it, it, you can see, how, yeah, you know, maybe casting aside everything and, and, be, and throwing yourself in with Satan might be the more appealing option in this case. Right. I mean, if they're going to think you're a witch anyway. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. Well. Again, there's there's like a self-fulfilling prophecy right. aspect to it. It's just like, I think that that it doesn't take much effort to look at that and think she's given up her soul for the taste of butter. Yeah. But we're not seeing that downside. 
like he doesn't say sell me your soul he, right. you don't see any consequences for what she's done you only see the pleasure which is the only pleasure she gets in the film mm-hmm. so like i i see how you would have that interpretation but i think it's because you're bringing your anti-baby mashing morality into <laughs> it and you're feeling that selling your soul in exchange for murdering people is a bad thing mm-hmm. i just i don't see that played out in what we see on screen and that's what makes it so troubling is there there are very few movies where that happens where there isn't a consequence you know like oh, yeah. every other movie about the devil like something horrible happens to the person that's sold their soul but this one she's just like having the best time of her life yeah this movie would not pass the Hayes code no for some, <laughs> and that's the only reason <laughs> only because she's not punished it has, right. like the right. nudity would totally pass. everything else would be fine. <laughs> yeah. you know I, I kind of think about this film as being a, you know a movie about america you know surely we can imagine the puritans coming over um, wanting to start a new life for themselves free of persecution uh able to follow their own you know religious dogma and then then the country itself taking over and infecting them and making things not what they had imagined them to be and that split really happening being a progressive split between them where they start in the film in, as part of a community and then they're exiled and you get to that p- place at the end that just feels like a drift really from where they started from originally as being americans and that's such an american thing to have that conflict now in place um in the country between you know the super people who are very religious and people who are <laughs> commits sin and violence uh, and all of that is part of america and i just i think the film really keys in on that and then you know and it of course sets the stage for the Salem witch trials which will come you know a few decades down down the line 60 years later yeah. right and so. there's also the idea the, in the opening that the his first thing is why do I forget the I can't quote it but why do we even come here why are we in this new land if, if we're not going to make things better and there's sort of this sense that everything they were fleeing in from Europe has come with them to America, mm-hmm. you know, literally witches, but also the sort of the beliefs and, and, and things that made, you know, made life horrible there have, have followed them here. Well, and, religious persecution. I mean, he's right. being persecuted for sure. the extremism of his religion. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really interesting choice for Robert Eggers to make it completely unclear, like what the issue is. Are they going West into the wilderness because they're strong American iconoclasts with their own beliefs and they're going to stand up for what's, you know, freedom and and justice and apple pie and whatever or are they being kicked out because they can't get along with anybody like it's you're not given the information to make that decision so again you have to kind of rely on what's on screen i want to talk just briefly about uh christianity and the wicker man since we focused so much on the witch i mean again christianity and the wicker man is a very lonely thing and it's because, you know, he has these beliefs that sustain him and and make him feel strong, but he's persecuted back in his own hometown and he's persecuted where he ends up. And in the end, we see it, his Christianity is just this very thin straw that he's clinging to on the moment of death. And it seems to give him some comfort, but not an awful lot. Even the way that their their song drowns out his screaming of Bible verses, I mean, it's very much like the, the film is kind of saying like how pointing out how flimsy his faith is in this particular moment. I mean, that's one of the reasons this movie is so memorable is yeah. it's so openly evil triumphant. Yeah. And Edward Woodward, you just you have to give that man points. The way he plays that scene, starting with the moment that he realizes he's been cornered when mm-hmm. he's like looking for escape on the cliffs, like up to the moment where he's burning to death that that performance makes that movie and it makes mm-hmm. that ending well especially when you contrast it with cage's performance <laughs> of that same scene which is just like the fact that he made it so comical when it, i mean obviously that's a very difficult line to to tread and i find it so hard to explain what's wrong with cage's performance because i mean you know he's an extremist and he's in terrible pain and fear and he's screaming and you can you can't stop laughing right. because it's so why. tacky. Like, can you imagine how unbelievably boring the, the Wicker Man, the remake of the Wicker Man, would be, would be without Nicolas Cage? <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and defend Cage on that front. He gives that thing, he gives that film all of its energy and all of its life and all of its fun. Um, uh, hats off uh, to. I mean, it may be totally inappropriate or something for whatever the hell Labute was trying to do, but but kind of to close out Keith's topic, they completely remove his religion, don't they? They just kind of lose that yes. whole aspect of the film. They make him like a self-help addict, but then they don't really pick up that thread again. Yeah, and it just, 
I mean, that movie is so much about belief, about the strength and passion of belief. And you take that away. And I think that's one of the big reasons the remake just ends up feeling so empty. I think he tries for something completely different, I mean, which I appreciate in a remake. I just don't think it succeeds at all. Well, we can't really talk about uh, the 2006 Wicker Man without transitioning into my topic, which is how these these two movies portray women. I mean, it seems to me that The Witch is it's kind of fundamentally a strange feminist movie. It's so much about the repression of this society and the inability of women to express themselves in any way other than through motherhood, through servanthood, through quietness and piety and doing as they're told. And no matter which direction Thomason looks in, it's the wrong way. She's blamed for the fact that her brother looks at her breasts with lust. That's clearly her fault Mm -hmm. for no reason that can possibly be expressed. She's called a, she's what, 14, something like that. And completely isolated and alone. And her mother, when angry at her, calls her a whore. Mm -hmm. There's just that, that feeling that if a woman in that era had any form of power, it had to be evil. We don't even know how, but it, it has to be evil. And it seems like throughout The Wicker Man, one of the things that becomes subversive about it is that it keeps tapping into this like very animalistic power of women. And the power of women always seems to involve nudity and sex. But one of the things that's crazy and wild and unsettling about paganism for Howie is seeing how women are flaunting their bodies and enjoying sex and being out in public places in the nude and all of these things that are outside his frame of reference. To Howie, and this is a scene I guess you guys didn't get, but there's a scene at the beginning where he's singing in the church and he looks at his fiance, who's this very prim woman, and they give each other like these little approving, you know, yes, we're in our place doing the right thing, mm-hmm. kind of tight little smiles. And it's it's all about kind of the the repression and the fixation of people in their places and it, the contrast between christianity and satanism or paganism in both of these films i think just really strongly becomes a, a contrast between like women being free to do what they want whether that's baby mashing or flying through the air <laughs> versus women doing what they're told. Right. I agree with everything you just said. But like I said before, I think Eggers is trying to clearly, I think he's trying to have it both ways. Because on one hand, he's making a a point about the way women were treated then and how they were subjugated and oppressed and everything you just said. But on the other hand, he's like, but actually, like, they were witches and there were witches and they were very likely to become witches. And and then the, I don't love the way that he sort of lingers on the witch's body as like this form of horror. And, you know, she's like this hot young thing for a second. And then she's like this hag with like folds of, of flesh. Again, it was ambiguous, but I think it didn't want to come down on either side. Yeah, I mean, I feel like The Wicker Man has a much more defined idea of what it's trying to say yeah. than The Witch does. For me, like The Witch is like a triumph of preparation and craft and intent in craft, but maybe not an intent in concept. I think the ambiguity is pretty fascinating, how, how it plays it as what if everything these people believed was literally true, and yet you can kind of see why an escape through witchcraft would be appealing and, and, and necessary for anyone who didn't want to just be subjugated. I mean, even if all this were true, my repression rejects the truth of it mm. and I'll, I'll go to the other side instead. And I think that's, I think that's a really fascinating position for the film to take. Mm. No, I agree. I, I like, I, I think one of the things that makes the film so fascinating is that she is, her society backs her into a corner where she only really has, well, she has two outs. One of them is die. And the yeah. other one is the path that she takes. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, on a uh, cheerier note, <laughs> like I, it, uh, we we saved you for last, Rachel, because I think we want to we want to go out on this singing. What's your topic? On this note, yes. <laughs> Um, so music is obviously a very large presence in each film and a large part of what makes each of them very effective in very different ways. The music in The Witch, it's composed by Mark Corvin and, and Eggers in the screening that we went to. He said he originally didn't want a score, but realized he never would have been able to articulate certain emotional states without this music. So then he went to him and said, I want something that's a mix of 17th century and, as he put it, horrible, dissonant, atonal 20th century music, <laughs> which I think comes through. I mean, mm-hmm. it's the shriek, these shrieking women and these dark drum beats and 
there are a lot of moments where it's just incredibly hushed and the tent the movie really ratchets up along with the music and the music is very much telegraphing what's what's happening on screen whereas in the wicker man it's sort of the exact opposite of what's going on i mean it's this folksy nursery rhymes hand clapping joviality these these Scottish sort of jigs. It's by Paul Giovanni and a band called Magnet that was that was created just for this film, and um, it's it's unorthodox and for a horror film and for any film really in that it's 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 also talking a lot about the plot. A lot of what happens is explained through music. Keith, you said earlier it was sort of a it is kind of a stealth musical. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, the film pauses for full musical numbers that right. express the themes and the action and and what's going on in in, a, in ways that are not covered elsewhere in the movie. And, and I mean, it's also it it pauses repeatedly for on-screen performers to sing these songs, which is, I mean, it's very much a hallmark of a musical. It's not like, you know, uh, The Graduate has been kind of posited as a stealth musical because it also pauses for these long songs, but there's nobody on screen singing them. This is, music is so much a part of their world that they're making it all the time in Wicker Man. it's so cheerful, but the lyrics are so messed up. Like, (laughs) that's the best part is you're like, oh my gosh, what a lovely town of lovely people. And then they're singing about like maypoles being penises and it's like young children. And that was so brilliant for me because the entire conceit, both for Howie and the viewers, it's unclear by the end whether the music is something that the townspeople actually regularly sing and if this is their actual tradition or if they're doing it to sort of, again, like trick him into believing all these things about their society and culture. I, I think the fact, too, that, that it's a chorus is important because I, I think that you know, automatically has you thinking that they're a community, that they're unified in thought, that they're unified in song, uh, that, you know, and it kind of you know really enforces the conspiratorial nature of what they're doing. So it, it functions to that effect. And I think it also contrasts, too, between you know, they're singing songs, and I think, you know, our detective is used to hymns, you know, mm-hmm. and those are two different, two very different, you know, forms of expression. I know. I mean, and the songs that they sing are, they mark him as an outsider, both in that they all know these songs and he doesn't, but also in that this, the intent of these songs is so often ribald, is so often body, is mm-hmm. so often sexual, and it's horrifying to him. And I'm not even talking about Willow's song. I'm talking about the songs that get sung down in the pub about the landlord's daughter and what lies between her left toe and her right toe, <laughs> <laughs> which I love that lyric. Yeah. And but, the shot, the overhead shot. Uh, yeah, the overhead shot, shot of their of the, legs. Of the That's Different, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's terrific. Scott, I believe you have a defense of corn rigs and barley rigs and corn rigs are bonnie. <laughs> I just like the song. I think it just sets the sets the tone. It just feels it just feels like I'm entering into a, a nice '70s cult movie, and uh, and uh, that brings me. You know, I mean, you could that 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 kind of folk music. You know, I think you really connect so specifically to that period, and uh, you know, to me, it just gets gets me right right into the world of the film. And like, what a weird what a weird uh, thing to sing about. <laughs> You know, I looked up, I was like, what the hell is a corn rig? Is it just the piles of pulled together sheaves of corn? And I looked it up. You look up corn rigs online, you get a billion references to this song and the Wicker Man. Really? And that's about it. Like you get the sheet music. So I still don't really know what a corn rig is. Keep How do you guys feel about the rock music in the cave sequence? <laughs> that really took me out. It's really anomalous. <laughs> It's like they run into the cave and like Goblin is hanging out there from yeah. Suspiria, just like playing in the background. <laughs> right. and they're like, crap, we didn't mean like, for you to ha- see us. What just happened? Did they just switch music directors? Keith, we haven't heard from you in a while. What do you think about the music? Uh, we talked a lot about The Wicker Man. Uh, I was quite taken with the music of The Witch, which, you know, it doesn't necessarily, be, it doesn't really begin with that atonal 20th century music. It kind of works its way up to that, mm-hmm. which I think is, is really interesting. It kind of gets increasingly modern and dissonant as it as it goes along which seems appropriate for the film and I, I thought that was a smart choice um wicker man like i said i it would not work without the songs i mean i don't think it's, it's a very different movie without the songs it, it is so kind of sets the tone and so establishes what the world is which is which is not quite modern these are songs that we learned that they're not but they feel like songs that have been passed down from generation to generation like the maypole being revealed as a phallic symbol it's kind of like these you scrape away the the christian modern uh element of 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 this the scottish island and there's something much older underneath it and i think that's the songs uh, are really uh, a nice way to bring that out cycling back to the question of whether these films are horror i feel like the songs in the wicker man are maybe the strongest argument that it isn't and the soundtrack in the witch is maybe the strongest argument that it is mm-hmm. though i've heard wicker man described specifically as folk horror <laughs> which kind of just puts them all together there 
The first search for corn rig on Google is corn rigs and barley rigs. What are they? <laughs> Yahoo answers. I know that corn rigs are bonnie and all, but why, how, and what are they? <laughs> and is there an answer? Does the internet know why corn rigs Let's are so, bo- so damn bonnie? No, it's a field with corn planted through it, and a barley rig is a field with barley planted in it. Um, with a little bit of Googling, I was reminding something I already knew, which was that it comes from a Robert Burns poem called The Rigs O' Barley, which uh, makes it not a traditional folk song, makes it a, a, in... Relatively speaking, a recent song since the poem was composed in 1783. We can learn something new every day, and some of these things, yeah, some of these things you don't you learn on Yahoo. All right, well, I am uh, fleeing my Yahoo Answers slash Google failures and transitioning out of this podcast. The Wicker Man is available on DVD and Blu-ray in the Final Cut edition, and via video on demand services like Amazon, iTunes, and YouTube in the theatrical edition. Apparently, The Witch is currently in theaters, where you can play the "How many people will be breathlessly quiet throughout this film and then loudly gripe about the ending on the way out?" game. We'll be right back with our usual recommendation segment, your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call this Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Rachel, you want to kick us off? Yes. So I want to recommend Mustang, which is the directorial debut of a woman named, and I'm going to butcher this, but Denise Erguven. Um, it's about a group of five sisters living in Turkey. Uh, it's set in the present day. Um, and their bond is immediately evident. And they, they're these really sort of joyful, happy young girls. And they are one day playing around uh, with a group of boys in their neighborhood, playing chicken, and someone sees them. And they go home and their grandmother is furious with them. And she thinks that their behavior, this is actually appropriate for the witch, that their behavior was was slutty and inappropriate. And the film sort of chronicles what happens to them after that. How It's a little bit, it, people have compared it to The Virgin Suicides, but I think this is much better than The Virgin Suicides. Um, I think it was incredibly moving it's it's incredibly resonant i mean it's this is present day turkey that we're talking about these are they are sort of locked in their homes and they can't leave and they're all slowly married off and it's just a really beautiful sad powerful thought-provoking movie i mean i didn't know that it was going to be so emotional like i was bawling walking out of the theater I, I know i always say that but i was and i just think everyone should see it it's you know just in terms of like a social film like a social awareness film i think that's super important but i also think it's just a really really good movie oh that's a strong yeah, recommendation I, I i completely you know endorse it as well i saw it at, at music box when it played really just for a week mm-hmm. i don't know um, where you can see it now probably not anywhere. no i think it's kind of in between oh and it's uh, nominated for an oscar for it is nominated for, for for best, best foreign language film, film. We'll, we'll we'll people listening to this will have known whether it won or lost oh, to yeah. son of saul which almost certainly will but i love it too i do i think the virgin suicides comparison is strong and actually what i would have loved to have done uh, you know, a next picture show episode mm-hmm. on those two together because they're both about um, uh, these girls who are, you know, confined uh, to their home and, uh, you know, the consequences of that. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's an amazing movie. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Scott, what do you have for us? Well, just keeping with the horror th- theme, uh, I finally caught up with Unfriended. Oh, uh, nice. And I want Me to, too. I, and I, I, I highly recommend the specific experience of watching it on your laptop <laughs> or computer monitor because that's where the f- entire film takes place. And this really, that's really, this is the only time I'm going to recommend you watch a movie this way, but this is how you should watch it. Uh, stories about a bunch of teenage friends uh, who are Skyping each other uh, one night uh, when a friend who'd committed suicide sort of becomes sort of a ghost in the machine and makes them do terrible things and does terrible things. You know, there are shock scares here and there. I think the ending is just woefully compromised. But. Uh, Unfriended strikes me as one for the time capsule, uh, both as an innovative example of, you know, a lot of the sort of digital age horror that we've seen, and also just a a record of how people communicated with each each other in the year 2015, because I mean, surely we won't be communicating this way again, still, I mean, they'll be, will evolve, you know, five, ten 20 years later and we'll be able to to see unfriended to know exactly when unfriended took place which is fascinating to me and also and who uh who among us cannot identify with the horror of being stuck at your computer for hours unable to <laughs> unable to stop awful things from happening uh so i recommend it i think it's a very clever movie co-signed i, I agree i enjoyed that movie a lot i I'm, i participate in a, a small crap cinema club and we went to see that movie in the theater because we thought it would be crap and we all walked out of it doing that thing where we give each other the side eye of 
I enjoyed that. Can I admit it? And it became a huge relief when we were all able to say, that was a really fun and well put together mm-hmm. kind of crappy movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's, it reminds me a little of Cloverfield, not in the execution, but just in the verisimilitude, like how well it's put together oh, yeah. no, as a package of what it's pretending to be. I mean, seriously, the, the, the desktop in that film the, of the protagonist mirrored my own. It was creepy. It's like you just had just the right amount of clutter <laughs> on the desktop. Um, so watch it on your uh, laptop or computer monitor. Uh, Keith, what about you? Uh, well, I have a couple things to touch on. One, Unfriended, uh, I'm, I'm with you most of the way. The problem is, I, I don't care if any of those kids get killed. They're awful. They're all awful. <laughs> <laughs> That's that well, kind of horror movie. So, we, so you, so to this podcast, you've just been a staunch defender of uh, hardcore Christianity. <laughs> you are the most moral person be, at this all, table. All these horrible kids to die. <laughs> I'm in the real life Edward Woodward in uh, The Wicker Man. Um, you reminded me, uh, uh, your recommendation reminds me of another um, Oscar nominated foreign film I saw this week, which is Embrace the Serpent by Colombian director Chiro Guerra, which is which is really good is it's this interesting look at, at sort of you know uh, two trips up the Amazon and, and different parts of the 20th century by European explorers but it's not you know, like your typical uh, white person experiences uh, the uh, the foreign culture um, for the first time film it's actually not my recommendation though although I do recommend it I enjoyed this week digging into the blu-ray of the new blu-ray edition of the graduate which is filled with all kinds of wonderful features one of which is not new but it is a uh, it is a terrific audio commentary in which Steven Soderbergh talks with director Mike Nichols about the film and it's sort of such a smart frank conversation Nichols talking about how so much of the film was kind of, you know, it's sort of instinct. And, and so much of we think of like these groundbreaking kind of thought through ideas, like like letting the uh, full songs play out and these montages tell the story was something like it felt like the thing to do. But also his sort of reflecting back on who he was at the time and how he once heard he you know he, he heard a cinematographer the veteran cinematographer Bruce Surtees who he hired for this film and did a wonderful job apologizing to the crew saying the job's almost over you don't have to work with me but basically saying you know you're not going to work with this tyrannical new director anymore <laughs> uh, uh, and how awful that made him feel it's like this just really great reflection back and it's like a wonderful conversation made me realize you know how, what we lost when we lost Nichols uh, they apparently did two other audio commentaries together Catch 22 and, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and I have not heard those commentaries. I actually haven't seen Catch Twenty Two, which has been on my list to watch for a while. Um, but it makes me do you know sitting down and listening to this made me want to uh, seek those other ones out. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Also, The Graduate's a good movie. Did you, did you guys know that? <laughs> <laughs> so Soderbergh's done some of those commentaries where he talks with uh, with another director, and that's that's a really good way of doing them. Uh, uh, so uh, Tasha, what about you? want to make a rather surprising recommendation for me uh, for a little movie called How to Be Single, which I saw completely for work purposes out of curiosity and ended up really enjoying. Um, It's kind of a standard issue ensemble comedy, a lot of threads, a lot of women. The the whole idea is it's okay to be single, ladies. It's okay to be out there on the hunt for a romantic partner and have not gotten there yet. And I expected it to be you know, very much full of these romantic cliches. And in the end, everybody would stop being single and they've all learned something. But it doesn't actually go that way. It's, it feels like a Gary Marshall movie, you know, your Valentine's Day, your New Year's Day, like that kind of, of pap with the intellect turned up about 500%. It's funny. Rebel Wilson is uh, plays a very Rebel Wilson character, but she's actually, she fits into the movie and she's really great. Fifty Shades of Grey's Dakota Johnson, of all things, is enjoyable. Leslie Mann uh, is really enjoyable in it. There's just kind of a like a little bit of an ensemble going on where people unexpected people keep popping up. That's I think all I want to say about that. But in the end, it actually ends up committing to its, its basic premise and saying it's okay for you to not define yourself by your relationships, which for a, a big chunk of like wish fulfillment, like straight up chick flick romance drama, I thought actually was really daring. I I ended up coming away from it thinking that was not what I expected. And I really loved it. Like, I think all of the people who go to romantic comedies and complain about romantic comedies would like this movie. And I'm actually not surprised at all that Dakota Johnson is good in the movie because she's got serious comic chops. If you saw the short-lived television show Ben and Kate, 
uh, with uh, her and Nat Faxon. Quite strong. You just um, stole exactly what I was going to say. And she's funny in Fifty Shades of Grey. I think she she makes it not horrific. Yeah, mm-hmm. my Dakota Johnson experience is apparently sadly limited, and mm-hmm. I need to get a little more Dakota Johnson <laughs> going on. Really briefly, uh, one more thing I'd recommend is birthmoviesdeath.com has an article by Devin Ferrasi talking about uh, going to an after party for the witch uh, put on by the Satanic Temple full of satanic ritual. And if you're wondering why they recommended the movie, Keith, there's actually a lot of really cogent intellectualized explanation of what they see in the movie and what they think it communicates. And it's an interesting read, um, both for the copious casual nudity that he reports at the after party and for the philosophical constructs as to what the satanic temple feels like the movie is doing um, and why that's interesting to them. Keith promises to read it and accept Satan into his heart and mash up some babies. I'm going to make that the first thing I do after we're done and perhaps come back committed Satanist. That's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episode comes out March 15th and 17th, and we don't know what we're talking about yet. That's because the screenings that we've got for the next couple of weeks have not lined up in such a way that we've been able to see any of the movies that we're considering. We've got kind of a laundry list going on. We're going to evaluate them and come back with an appropriate pairing as opposed to a guesswork pairing. It's going to be so good. It's going to be so amazing and so awesome. And we'll announce it on the Twitter so you'll have a little preparation time. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of The Wicker Man, The Witch, and anything else film-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before we close out this episode, we have some happy-slash-sad news sad emoji. Uh, This is going to be it for a little while for Rachel Handler on the next picture show. Rachel, you want to tell us why? Yeah, so I'm actually uh, taking a job at MTV News. I'm really excited about it. I'll be writing about culture, so movies and TV, just a little bit different in that I will not be vocalizing it on this podcast. But yeah, I'm moving to New York, so that's why I can't do this podcast anymore, even though I'm going to try to force you guys to let me Skype in sometimes. <laughs> and we're definitely going to try that, but I mean, you've got you've got to move and you've right. got to start a new job <laughs> and there's there's going to be a lot of like unsettled unsettled yes. times in the Indeed. awesome times ahead. I might ahead. turn to Satan. <laughs> <laughs> Who's to say? Whatever gets you good copy, you gotta go. You gotta go with whatever the source of that is. When uh, when do you think we'll, we should expect to actually see your stuff on the site? I'm starting March eighth. I'm not sure if I'm gonna be writing that day, but probably soon thereafter. Well, why don't you tell us where we can find you in the meantime, so people can follow your adventures and so you can tell them what you're up to once you're up to stuff. Um, I'm on Twitter at Rachel underscore Handler, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, where can people find you these days? Well, you can find me on Twitter and Peach at, at <laughs> Scott. I'm not live Peach the Oscars. I'm sorry. No. Um, I'm at, you should at be sorry. Scott underscore Tobias. Um, and you can find my work at such publications as NPR, Variety, uh, Vulture, New York Times, Washington Post, Rolling Stone, and Oscilloscope's Musings. Uh, Keith, where can we find you? I'm at uprocks.com, doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes, occasionally in front of the scenes. And I'm on Twitter at kfips3000. And Tasha, where can we find you? You can find my writing at The Verge and NPR Books right now. Um, And you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can also follow our producer Genevieve at Genevieve Kosky on Twitter. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show via Twitter at NextPitcherPod or by visiting nextpictureshow.net. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, think about rating and reviewing us. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks again to Genevieve for producing the show and to Delmark Records for providing recording space at their home base, Riverside Studios. And finally, we'd like to thank our parent podcast, Film Spotting, for all their help, input, and support. Tune in next time and keep watching those movies. Mm-hmm.